Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm handing over the hosting job to my good friend and fellow writer, Hayley Dunning, because, as you might have seen on this episode title, today's guest is me. Take it away, Hayley. Hello, I'm Hayley Dunning, and I'll be talking to Chloe Timms about her literary dystopian novel, The Sea Women. Chloe is a former teacher and lives on the Kent coast. She completed an MA at Kent University and won a scholarship to the Faber Academy, which is where we met. Aside from writing and hosting this podcast, Chloe is also a disability rights campaigner. In this episode, we discuss the stages of creating a fictional island, how her disability impacts on what she writes, and the challenge of starting work on something new. But first, here's Chloe with an excerpt from The Sea Women. Picture the island now, and what do I see? A grey day. The wind crackling, the gulls crying, the land, a turret rising high out of the wild sea, the top of the island, the northern edge, lost in mist, the chapel, the church, the harbour, the peat moors, the knitters and the milkers, the gutter women with their knives, fish juices and seawater running up to their elbows, women clutching their crosses, looking down at their feet, praying for the Lord's protection. They've heard the rumours. They had an inkling all along. The bells of a Sunday service, ringing out past the gust-wrecked croft houses, through the fields as the wild sheep chase each other as far as the heather in the north, to the stretches of the island that are worn and crumbled, once ours, but claimed by the sea now. I picture the past, her cottage, where it all began, what would I have changed? What good is change? It's too late for that now. It's too late for anything. This island is built on stories, tales, law, lies. They have their reasons. To while away the hours, to hide the truth, to soften, to reassure, to explain, to warn, to scare. Everyone on this island has a story. And this is mine. I am three years old, struggling to keep up with her. We were walking there, to her cottage, on a south-easterly point of the island, a downward slope where the land was carpeted and green and pitted, with holes made by field mice and puffins. 
Around the cottage was a scruff of nettles, a low mist rolling off the spine of the sea. We were caught in the middle of a downpour, a squall of it coming straight from the west. Rain so cold it made me forget I was made of flesh and blood. So fast I lost my vision. We were laden with bags and boxes. Nothing in them belonged to me. Everything inside was given in sympathy. Wooden blocks, knitted dolls, clothes that other children had outgrown, dresses that would take months to fit me, a large bonnet that had been made especially to cover my scars. We were running for shelter, the horizontal sheets of rain making everything a murky silver. Everything that had once been mine was ash. We stood under the overhang of the white cottage, shaking off the wet, my teeth rattling pebbles. Sal was her name, my grandmother. I'd like to sever her from my story, but I can't. Our blood is tied. My story is hers. Everything I am started with her in that damp cottage. Hello, Chloe, and welcome to your own podcast. Hi, Hayley. Thank you so much for interviewing me. And it's very nice to be here, but very strange to be on the other side of the conversation today. Well, you know how this starts. Please, can you tell us a bit about the plot of The Sea Women? So, The Sea Women is a dystopian novel with a fantastical edge. It's been described as The Handmaid's Tale meets The Shape of Water, which I know is quite a strange mashup, but I think it works. So it's about a young woman called Esther who's raised on a cold and remote island by her grandmother and their lives are ruled by a very religious and strict cult who control the island and they rule by fear. So they fear damnation, they fear the outside world and most importantly they fear the sea and the creatures that lurk within it who they call the sea women and they believe the sea women to be a corrupting force on the women of the island. So Esther has her life pretty much mapped out. She knows that she's got to get married. She knows that she's got to have children. But she's a bit of an outsider. She's quite a curious girl. She doesn't quite want to follow the route that's been laid out for her. So at one point in her life, she does something that gives her a very brief taste of freedom. And then from that point, the world that she knows begins to unravel. Ooh. So there's quite a lot of big ideas in there. So where where was the seed of that? Where did the idea come from? I heard you say once it was originally a poem. Yeah, and I'm definitely not a poet, so I don't really know why it started from a poem. I wrote a poem for a short writing course I was doing with the University of Exeter on a kind of distance learning course. And it's weird because I know some writers they can remember that first flash of inspiration. And I'm not sure that I can. I just know that I had this idea of a woman falling in love with a man in the water and not being able to get to him and not being able to swim. And so it was a very kind of doomed, tragic love story, essentially. And it always stayed with me. It was one of those ideas I kind of kept going back to and wanting to do something with. And like I said, I'm not a poet, so I knew it wasn't going to stay as a poem and I kind of played around with writing a short story but it just felt too big and the more I wrote the kind of bigger it got and I remember thinking like there's no way I can write a novel because it's just too huge a project and then it kind of evolved from there really but I always knew it was going to be set on an island always knew it was going to be about a kind of woman um, not being able to swim and being kind of trapped by this water and I think that maybe more 
subconsciously now that I think back on it is I guess part of my life kind of plays into that because I can't swim anymore and I used to be able to swim when I was younger and I think that kind of feeling of being trapped or that feeling of having your your kind of boundaries drawn around you is probably something that was playing on my mind that I didn't realise at the time but now I look back on all the pieces of the puzzle of the inspiration coming together that was probably something playing in the back of my mind as well Mm, and you talk about the island there and the island is such a powerful setting but it's also this weird mix of like the future and the past so how did you approach that world building element well it's funny because I was really reluctant and resistant to make the island a like a real place or existing and I was very much like it's completely made up and at the beginning I borrowed ideas from kind of all over the world really in terms of um, shells and creatures and it was very much a mix of all different areas of the world and then the more work I did on it and I did do some work with an editor called Sally OJ and she kind of said it's too muddled it's too confused you need to kind of ground it in reality a bit more kind of decide where it is in the world is it northern hemisphere southern hemisphere so the more work I did on the world building the more I kind of had an island in mind of where it was actually set and then it became easier to decide like what birds are going to be there what flora and fauna are going to be there and and then it was I, I still I still I guess partly was reluctant to to set it in a in a real world setting but I guess it's easier for readers to to ground themselves but I did want a mix of I I, I again and time was another thing where I was like okay this is not set in any particular time it's not future it's not past it's just a time but again I, I understand how that can frustrate some readers so sort of discussions between me and my agent we we decided to to set it in the future even though there's no date specified but there isn't kind of a suggestion about what might have happened to the world. And uh, so, yeah, I kind of had to come up with more of like a, a logic to the world, which is, is, is very difficult. But I remember some advice that, again, Sally OJ gave me. And she said that what you want to do, even like just in that first chapter, is establish that it's future. So mention something that is not historical. So there's a mention of um, shoelaces in the first in the prologue which is because I wanted it to be known straight away that we weren't in the past, because I think a lot of readers might feel, okay, this is a historical novel, because it's quite brutal in, in some of the ritual and things, but once you read the shoelaces, you know it's not historical. <laughs> and of course you had to make up not just the world, but also all the people in it, and anyone who reads your book will just absolutely fall in love with Esther, your main character, I'm certain of it. And she's a really strong central character so how did you develop her voice especially in you know her journey from kind of young and innocent and in this in this cultish world to fighting against it yeah Esther's an interesting one because one of the first drafts of the novel it wasn't from Esther's point of view at all which seems crazy to think about it now because obviously she's so central to the story but the more I worked on the novel the more I realized I it was her story and I kind of deep down knew it needs to be from a woman's perspective and from her perspective because I think hers was the most interesting story. She, I think like everything in the novel was developed as I've written it. She's always been this outsider. She's always not fitted in. 
every draft that I've had, she's had a difficult relationship with her husband and his family. It's funny that her and her grandmother have such a central relationship in the novel because, again, when I first started writing a draft, I started with Esther at a much older age and at that point her grandmother was dead. And um, I remember having some feedback actually at Faber where we met and everyone was saying they loved the grandmother's voice and um, why wasn't she in it more? And then I kind of went back to making Esther younger and starting the story from an earlier point. And of course, Sal, her grandmother, came into it a lot more and actually I really enjoy writing Sal, so I'm glad that she uh, made an appearance much earlier. But I guess the central core of Esther didn't really change. It was more that the story kind of shifted around her. But um, she, her kind of personality has been the same the whole way through. As I said, she's very much a outsider and she's very much trying to forge her own path against what is really an inescapable regime and it's fighting against it, but in smaller, subtler ways, really. Hmm. Now, I know a lot of people's first books tend to have a lot of themselves in it. So do you see a lot of yourself in Esther? I think in some ways she's a lot braver than I am. And I suppose there is that, I guess, the natural kind of like outsider element of it. And I think being disabled, I I can't see myself ever writing about people that fit into society in that in that sense. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what people think. Maybe maybe they'll think she's similar to me or not. I don't know. I think she has uh, quite a bit of your spunk. If that's the word. Well, yeah, maybe maybe you, maybe you maybe you tell me. You know me. So uh, what do you think? Yeah, and I I think that she she evolves a lot throughout the story so that you can see the change in her as well. And obviously, I've only known you four years, so I didn't know you when you were a kid, but I can imagine that you have grown in your power, at least even when I've known you, mm. you've grown in your power too. Now, we've talked a little bit about your disability, and I was going to save it till later, but since we've talked about it, maybe we should should go there. So, um, you know, how does it affect what you write, and will it in the future? Yeah, I think so. So I've got a condition called spinal muscular atrophy. It's a genetic condition. Um, it's known as like a, a muscle wasting condition, which means that uh, it's progressive and gradually over time my muscles get weaker and it affects pretty much every muscle in my body. I think on a physical sense, my writing is affected because um, I get tired and my arms, like today I felt like I had a really bad, I call it like a bad arm day because like my arms feel incredibly heavy and just hard to move and I think it's because I probably well no today it was because I wore a jumper and so it was extra heavy to move my arms um but on a kind of more of a, a writing sense probably implicitly and does affect what I write even if I'm not 100% aware of it it's hard because I really truly believe in better disability representation in fiction and I'd love to see more disabled characters especially at the sort of the front of a novel but and it's something I do want to write about in time but at the moment I just feel like I'm not ready to write about disability in that way yet and like I, I always keep saying like I'd love to read a disabled Bridget Jones type novel I don't think I'm the person to write that but I would love to see a kind of wheelchair using rom-com type novel but I, I don't know I think it takes a, a certain introspection to to uh, write about disability and 
I think I'm still on a journey in terms of my own ableism. So I think one day, but not yet. That's fair. I mean, as as we've talked about, Esther has her own sort of boundaries and the boundaries she wants to try and push and fight against. And I guess it will take you that lifetime as well, perhaps, to, to push yeah. those boundaries yourself. Let's go back into the story a bit because it has a lot of elements to it. So there's the religious cults like we talked about. There's some magical realism with the sea women. There's romance. You know, you've got a bit of rom in there as well. Not so much the com. Um, and, a bit, <laughs> and a bit of folk horror as well. So how did you balance all these different elements? Yeah, like it's weird because I... So very recently I watched The Wicker Man and so much of that I could see in my own novel, which was strange because I watched it kind of afterwards. And people have said to me recently that my my book um, reminded, them, reminded them of The Village, the film. And I, I laughed because I did actually watch The Village and, like, make notes because I really loved, like, I love that whole... I mean, hopefully everyone's seen The Village and they know what the twist is. But, you know, that, the, the idea of people being taken away from the modern world and... It, again, The Village is kind of, like, historical because they're going back to basics and it's because they want to live a different life. And I guess my novel's a bit like that, but it, it all came at different times. I can't really, I can't really say it, it all came together. Um, it, the novel has changed so much from the first time I ever started writing it. So it's hard to kind of remember how it all came together, but now I can't think of things not being there. So, so for the kind of religious element, that's so central and it's like the untethering ceremonies. They came probably six months into writing the first draft. But again, that's such a central element that it seems just bizarre that then they weren't there from the beginning, but they weren't. Yeah, as I know, this book has been through a lot of iterations, as, as you kind of explained there, that so much of it is built yeah. up over time, you know. Um, I think, yeah, when you came to the Faber Academy, I think you said you had like a half written version that was from when Esther was older, like you're saying, sort of after the mm -hmm. events that we actually now see in The Sea Women. Yeah, yeah. And then at some point, I know you turned into your agent a, a version that was many, many, many thousands no. of words long. <laughs> yeah, don't even go there. <laughs> yeah. got cut off. That was, that was um, I mean, I'm going to blame that on lockdown because in 2020, I kind of panicked and after I'd had feedback from Nell, my agent, I then proceeded to write 175,000 words mm -hmm. because I just panicked that I didn't know what I was doing and I needed to write more and more and more and hopefully somewhere in there was what she wanted and, and the novel and Nell came back to me afterwards and said, uh, yeah, no one is going to, no one is going to buy a 175,000 word novel. So I've, uh, I've chopped 72,000 words out of it which which was absolutely fine well I say it's gonna sound like I'm making up when I say it was fine but actually by that point I was just so relieved that she liked it and that it still worked and that she was really happy with the changes that I was just like fine <laughs> take the 72 words I don't care and I lost a whole character I lost like another kind of subplot and um so yeah a lot was lost but actually I don't think it matters and, and I don't see that as time wasted because I obviously learned a lot from it. And like you say, the novel changed so much. But again, like you said earlier, that the novel changed completely. I mean, I started writing. So I wrote the poem in 2014. I started writing a version of the novel in 2016. 
So it's it's gone through so many different versions. In my head, it's still the same story. It's still the same island. But obviously, the whole book itself is incredibly different. And I would, one day I might delve back into that first draft. And well, I say first draft. It's probably had about 18 different versions of that first draft. But it's still quite a lot of uh, manuscript. And in fact, a big chunk of it, uh, I got... I was a runner-up for the uh, Stylist Magazine's Fiction Prize. So it did really well, and I actually got agent interest at that point. But I didn't really understand what an agent did at that point, and I kind of wasted that opportunity. But then probably it was the right thing, because I I wasn't ready at that point to carry on with it. So you've written a lot of words. So do you write every day, or what's your kind of schedule? Um, If I'm... If I'm being good, I write five days a week, but that hasn't happened for a while. Um, I haven't been, I I say that as if it's, you know, I need to punish myself, but I actually feel like there are times when you shouldn't write every day because you're not in the right mindset or I think if you're just mentally exhausted, it's not a good idea. Um, A good, a good writing day for me would be about three hours a day. Um, I'm a, I'm a slow writer and I'm I'm too much of a nitpicker. I'll go over things over and over again. And I know that's not a very good way of moving forward, but I do find it hard to progress to another chapter until I'm partially happy with what I've written so far. And I'm, and I kind of, and again, I know a lot of writers will say, well, don't worry about the language until you're on your third draft. But I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, writing a nice metaphor or, or a nice sentence. So I do tend to, go over things a bit and also sometimes it's hard to get into a voice so I think that needs a bit of work before I'm I'm comfortable about moving on. For a lot of us on the the Faber course with you when we first read the the thing that you'd submitted we were all kind of bowled over by how beautiful (laughs) your writing is just just gorgeous kind of sensory scenes and things like that but how do you balance that with also making a story because the sea woman is also a brilliant story as well as being literarily beautiful well, thank you for saying so. I sometimes I I wonder whether um, I can make a good plot as well as a beautiful sentence. I think I've said to you in the past, like I know I can write a beautiful sentence, but can I write a good story? But thank you for saying that I can do both. It's weird actually you mentioning those bits that you read in Faber because I think probably both the scenes that you read are not in the book, which is again, is like all that stuff I've just thrown away. But anyway, it was, it's part of the process. Got to let go. That's part of writing. I think ultimately every book has got to be a page turner. And I know it's a kind of cliche to, to write in a review, like, Oh, it's a page turner, but you've, you've got to have a drive in the story of, of, something that makes the reader want to carry on. And when you're investing in a 300-page novel, it's got to be something good. I think, hopefully, people will be invested in Esther from right from the beginning, particularly when they see the stakes of what she's up against. And hopefully that's a big enough draw for people to read to the end and be kind of drawn into her world. And also, I think, when you're reading a, a book like The Sea Women, where you're doing a lot of world-building and creation of this this place that people aren't familiar with to me as if I was reading it it's it's learning about the world as you go as well and kind of piecing it together in your mind which I kind of find really interesting and kind of maybe watching the the kind of cult 
disintegrate a little bit, which I think is always something when I'm drawn to stories of cults, it's always like, how is that person going to escape or how's the, how's the leader going to be undone? Like that's, that's what I'm reading for. And I, and I suppose you're naturally, I find that I'm, I'm writing the story that I'm drawn to because I think a lot of time when you, when you're investing in a, in the story to write, you've got to be, you've got to be really interested in it. And I suppose that drive is what hopefully I've put into the, the narrative as well. You've talked a bit about cults and I do want to sort of get into why, why do cults fascinate you so much? Like, why do you want to see them torn down? Is it just that they're so oppressive and so constraining? I think part of it is the psychology behind why someone would get so invested in a cult and why someone gets dragged in to one. Um, and I, 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 I've said this on another podcast that one of my favourite characters to write is Father Jessup, which seems a bit mad because obviously he's horrendous, but it's it's that kind of power corrupting and that's such a fascinating thing to delve into and, and I kind of love the... Yeah, I love... It sounds strange to say, but I love writing the whole kind of like oppressive regime stuff. I just find it so horrifying, but it's it's great to write. I can't explain why. I don't know whether that makes me a bit sick, but I just love writing it. Well, as long as you also enjoy the bit where it gets taken down, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, not to give anything away, but I think most regimes, if they're going to be taken down, take time. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, but I hope there will be kind of there are seeds planted in in the novel that give a give the reader an idea of what will happen in fu- in the future i hope mm-hmm. i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, moving on from the words themselves, the cover of The Sea Women is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. If you haven't seen it, by the way, listeners, please go and Google it right now. Um, (laughs) It's so beautiful, but... How much influence were you able to have on that? And, which I know is a very important point for you, the font. <laughs> uh, there were several font options. Um, so I, I was presented with a couple, like, so basically the way it worked was I saw a kind of first version of the cover, which again was beautiful, slightly different from what the cover is now, but the kind of the main elements were the same. And then I saw two versions which were, kind of the potential final versions. And then I was like, can I have this font, but here instead? And yes, I'm very picky about the fonts. <laughs> Everyone knows that. So yeah, obviously cover design is not my area of expertise and I'm happy to leave it to the experts. The um, beautiful cover is the uh, brainchild of Peter Strain and Will Speed. And oh God, I just absolutely love it. I couldn't be ha- more happy with the final cover. Um, and. I know everyone just keeps saying to me, it's so beautiful. And I'm like, it really is. It was one of the things I was really nervous about because I'm very picky about a cover myself. And and I I know what I like in the cover and I know what I really don't like. And when when we kind of had our early discussions about the cover, my editor, Kwaku, said, build a kind of Pinterest board of images that you like or images that inspire you. And also put some covers in it that you like and so I did and went away and put up these Pinterest boards and um, replied to Quaker and said look there's some very different covers in here but hopefully you can get a sense of what I like. Quaker had a very strong image of what they wanted the cover to look like and sounded great so I was just like yep go ahead. So I didn't really have a huge input but I think that made it easier because I didn't know what I wanted and when I saw it, I was so happy and I couldn't have come up with that. So I was I was very, very happy with how it turned out. And yeah, I love it. Yeah, it definitely hit the jackpot there. But it's also, I think it's a perfect reflection because the, you know, the novel is very visual in that sense of, you know, like I said, the, the sensory um, description that you bring to it, it really helps evoke that as well. Now, you and I met doing the Faber Academy, which you mentioned, the Faber Academy's six-month writing a novel course, all the way back in 2018. Um, so for you, what did you get out of that course? Well, apart from some amazing friends, mm-hmm. uh, which, I mean, that's an incredible part of it. And I, Faber Academy is the best thing I've done in my life. And I was very fortunate because I won a scholarship to do the six-month write a novel course and I'd actually it sounds a cliche to say but I genuinely had forgotten I'd applied for it because it was I think it was like months before I heard whether I'd got in or not and then I got a phone call in January to say oh by the way you've you've won the scholarship and it starts next week and I was like ah okay I've got now got to go to London every week um and it was quite like because I live in Kent so it was quite a trek for me every Tuesday night but oh I just I absolutely loved being in an environment with people who are taking writing so seriously. And I think what I loved about Faber is that when well, we had a great group as well, we everyone got on really well and um, everyone was super serious about taking their writing seriously and working on their book kind of very professionally. 
and it, I think Faber is very geared around learning about the publishing industry and how to get an agent and kind of how it all works. Because I did an MA and that was very useful in terms of kind of um, learning about literature and how how to write, I suppose. And Faber does that as well, but um, Faber was very much geared to, towards kind of the professional side of it, which I really appreciated. And it was just such a great environment to critique work in a really honest and kind of fair way. And, and also, I mean, I can't, I can't sort of skip past favor without saying, basically it's the reason I got my agent because after we'd finished, um, our work appeared in the anthology and the anthology got sent to loads of agents. And literally the day the anthology went out, I got an email from Nell Andrew, um, who's now my agent. And I kind of, I was so taken aback because I didn't expect to, to to hear from anyone like on the day it went out, and uh, so yeah, without Faber, I don't know that I necessarily would have um, got her as my agent, and yeah, it's been it's been life changing, but not just kind of professionally, but personally as well, and I gained so much confidence from it, and like met so many amazing people that I just I have so much love for Faber and. I would love to be back there right now, to be honest, doing the course all over again. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Richard, our tutor, said a lot that sort of, a lot of it was about giving yourself permission to take your writing seriously. I think that's the first mm. time I'd done that as well. And even though, you know, you know, the book that I worked on there is not the one that I've ended up working with now and getting my agent for, but still it was completely invaluable to just have mm. that kind of professionalism, like you say. And so you mentioned you also did an MA in creative writing, that was right? So yeah, talked a little bit about how they compare, but would you recommend one over the other or does it really depend what a person wants? Yeah, I mean, they, they are very similar in some ways, like you do a lot of critiquing and I think I learned how to critique through the MA. Um, I think, you know, I met great people on, on the MA as well. Um, but as I said, I think it was, it was probably more, I guess educational, um, as it probably should be being an MA. Um, but you're looking at uh, works of great literature, modern, you know, contemporary rich literature. Um, and I and I I'm a bit of a nerd. I love doing all the kind of reading and discussion and things like that. I think I probably got more out of Faber because of the focus on the professional side. Because when I left the MA, I would have I had no idea how to get an agent or what to do on the MA. But the MA did give me the, the, I guess, well, I started my novel, I started The Sea Women there, even though it wasn't called The Sea Women, and it definitely wasn't the same book. And I think, I remember one of my, my tutors saying, like, basically, you're on this course to write a novel, and I think, not just to me, but to everyone, and like, basically, you should just give up on the idea of just being a short story writer. And until that point, I was like, I'm never going to write a novel, it's too, too much work, and it's too big, and... I'm not really, I don't know, I was, I'd always loved, wanted to be an author, but I guess I didn't really see myself as actually putting the work in <laughs> to write the novel. Um, and then I remember one of my other tutors, when I'd written a short story, which again, kind of same, same lifeblood as the sea women. And one of my other tutors said to me, like, this, this needs to be a novel. It's not a short story. It's too big. Um, so it all started there. So obviously without the MA, the sea women wouldn't exist. Um, and I had... I had a lot of enjoyment, I got a lot of enjoyment out of the MA as well. 
Um, so you've been kind of immersed in the literary world for quite a long time, in the writing world, and you do a lot of different things now. One of them, of course, is this podcast. So why did you decide to start this podcast? I am very nosy. I love a chat. I love talking to writers. I'm kind of obsessed with talking to other writers because it's such a, I'm just going to say, it's such a wanky subject. But I just love hearing about how other people write. I love hearing about where people get their ideas and, you know, hearing about... I, sometimes I think one day someone's going to say something and it's going to profoundly change the way I write and suddenly it's going to be so easy. That hasn't happened yet. Um, but I just really... I like hearing that it's a struggle for other people because it's it's quite a lonely job sometimes and um, you're in your own head a lot. And so it's nice to hear that other people have difficult days too. And I'm really interested in hearing how people got their book deal and how they got their agent because I think it's so varied. There isn't, obviously everyone knows that the kind of the normal way or the traditional way to get an agent would be to query, but there are so many different ways that people have got their agents. And I think when I think back to when I was starting out and I didn't know about agents or how to get an agent or anything, I would have really appreciated hearing all these stories to know that there are different ways and there's obviously lots of projections and, and setbacks and, but it doesn't have to happen in a, in a linear way. It can happen in all sorts of different ways. And I think um, it's interesting to hear all those different stories and, and hear people, different people's backgrounds and how they got into writing. And, but I love doing the podcasts. And uh, I think as well, because I've got this sort of little group of, uh, or quite a big group actually of debuts, debut writers, 2022 writers, um, we've all become really friendly and so it was I just kind of one day said oh, I've had this idea to do a podcast would anyone be interested in coming on and I was surprised because so many people said yes and I don't know whether I, I've always wanted I've always loved podcasts but and I, I kind of always wanted to do one but never knew what to do it on and so I kind of think I've I've found it now and I absolutely love doing it and I'm really pleased that so many people have said how much they enjoy it and stuff so yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that I did it. Good, and we're we're glad too, and glad that we're, we were able to give you this opportunity to talk on your own podcast as well. <laughs> now, in you know, I know you have some standard questions, and one of them is the kind of what are you working on next question. But mm -hmm. I also know that if I'd asked you this question like six months ago, you would have just gone like, oh, oh God, Haley, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I would have cried. Yeah, basically, would have just <laughs> gone, oh, I don't know. But you are now working on a book too. So how did you break that yeah. barrier of like finding the next idea? I mean, even talking about it just makes me feel ugh. Because I really, I'm really not an ideas person, which just sounds like a ridiculous thing to say. But when I hear writers that go, oh, I've got 12 ideas for a book and I just don't know what one to write first. And I've got all these ideas written down. I've got, three novels on the go and I just want to cry because I'm I'm really not that sort of person at all and I think as well like I've always loved writing but I need to be really obsessed with an idea to to go forward with it and I'm my own worst enemy and my own worst critic because I will sometimes dismiss an idea before it's got anywhere and I'll just go nope that's not a book that's not that's not enough for a novel and I think now I've written one I know how long it takes I know how difficult it is. I know the effort involved. So I know it needs to be something really good. And I just wasn't having 
any good ideas and I'm, I'm a perfectionist I kind of I'm super critical as I said about myself and I, I felt like I needed to have a very clear vision of what I wanted to do as well as the story itself and I, I needed to be committed to it and I didn't have that and I was panicking because you know it's the more you force yourself to think of an idea the less ideas you have and as I come at it with no ideas anyway I was like minus ideas and it was just getting more and more stressful um but I hope I've got something good now I'm really excited about it so I hope that uh that it'll it'll go well and turn into a, a great novel yeah so tell us about book two <laughs> you know normally that's the last question but I know I'll I'll I'm mixing it up a bit <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so book two at the moment it has no title I'm not very good with titles um, I don't know what the title will be, but anyway, it is a novel set at the moment that I'm working on it. It's set in three time periods. Um, one time period is about a woman who is accused of being a witch and the middle time period, I should say, they're all connected to a house, which is called the long house. These, there are three women that are connected to this house in different ways. Um, then we've got a central timeline, which is in the 1960s about a woman who ends up developing uh, postnatal depression and leaves her family behind to join a commune. And the third story is like a present day story about a teacher who is obsessed with true crime and investigates the secrets of the longhouse and also ends up embroiled in a um, illegal affair with one of her students. Plenty to get our teeth into there. And I see I sense some more cults in there too. <laughs> Oh, well, you know me, I love, love a cult. cult. Now, um, obviously you've said The Sea Woman is like The Handmaid's Tale and The Shape of Water, but are there other kind of books you might compare it to that people might enjoy if they enjoy The Sea Woman or the other way around? Yeah, I've had a couple of comparisons. Things like uh, The Mercies by uh, Kira Millwood Hargrave. Um, I really love the work of Kirsty Dogan and she was kind enough to blurb the book as well. Um, I really love um, all her work, but particularly um, the things like The Gloaming. And also, I'd say um, Sophie McIntosh, The Water Cure, and other people have also compared it to her other novel, Blue Ticket. Um, so, yeah, sort of watery, dystopian, witchy kind of novels. And, uh, yeah, like I say, other people have said kind of reminds them of The Village. So, um, so yeah, all of those combined. Lovely. Now, I know on this podcast as well, one of your standard questions is to ask authors for three pieces of advice. I'm going to mix it up a bit again and ask you for two of the best pieces of advice you've heard other authors give to you on this podcast and then one more of your own. So the two bits of advice from other authors. First one, um, quite a recent podcast is um, from Sophie Hayduk who wrote The Flames. And I think I said I loved her advice so much that I wanted to print it on a t-shirt because she said that Publishing a book is not a process to make you happy, but a process to broaden your horizons. And I thought that was just such a brilliant summary of basically how to balance your mental health and your how to cope basically with, with the whole writing process. So to see it as a way to, I guess, yeah, broaden your horizons, make you smarter and, and more interesting as a person than, than necessarily make you happy. And... So that's, I guess, more a, a bit of life writing advice rather than strictly writing advice. 
Um, my other bit of uh, advice that I've taken to heart from another writer would be from Kieran Goddard, because we had such a great conversation about um, specificity and about writing universal themes. And I think I really love prose when it's focused on something really specific. And Kieran kind of reminded me that like why that's the case, because it makes a situation or a character so real. So those two bits of advice are like my my favourite that I've had. My my bit of advice would be to oh, on my phone I've got so many photos from pages of books and so many screenshots of pages of my off my Kindle. So I'm a bit of a magpie when it comes to kind of collecting bits of writing that I like. And what I do, particularly when I'm struggling, so say I wanted to write, I don't know, an, an argument scene or something like that, I would I would be reading a book and come across a passage which was incredibly well written of an argument, let's say, and I would save it and take a picture of it because obviously I'm not going to plagiarise it, but it gives you a kind of a feeling or a vibe or the way they've used certain language to then have a go at in your own writing. And I think it does make you, obviously when you're writing I mean, I know some writers don't read anything while they're writing. That's not me at all. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge reader and I think reading is the only way I can become inspired if I'm having a difficult day with my writing. But I really like to look at other, other writers and how they do it really closely. And I would really recommend kind of keeping, whether it's on your phone or like a folder on your computer, but little snapshots of writing that really speaks to you whether it's the language or the way they've done dialogue or something like that, because they're like they're good reference points to keep going back to when you're having a difficult difficult time writing yourself. And that's a really nice piece of advice. Thank you. And thank you for being brave enough to be on your own podcast. I know it can be quite difficult to be on the other side of the microphone, but I'm sure listeners will agree that it's absolutely fascinating to hear you talk about your own journey as well. And it's nice to get to know the person behind presenting microphone so thank you Chloe, for being on your own podcast thank you very much for doing my job today <laughs> that was chloe timms talking about her literary dystopian novel the sea women which is out now and available to buy before i go let me just tell you about two events i've got coming up where i'm hosting this podcast confessions of a debut novelist live first i'm going to be talking to three authors at the being a writer festival hosted by the Literary Consultancy on June the 28th. Then on July the 22nd, I'm going to be talking to Louise Morrish about her historical novel at Jericho Writers Summer Festival. Both of these events are virtual, so you can join anywhere in the world and even ask questions. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time.